This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. Hello everyone. Thank you for listening to the Place of Peace podcast. On today's episode, we had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Trina Andres. This was a very informative podcast, and I learned a lot myself. I would like to apologize to Dr. Trina Andres. This system had cut her response off towards the end. But we thank her for her time, and we also thank her for this podcast interview. So without further ado, here goes the podcast. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. Hi, Trina. Trina is the department head of uh, marketing at Lebeau College of Business at Drexel University. Um, She happens to also be my boss and someone that I've been looking up to ever since I was a PhD student. And I actually know that that's true for almost all of the female PhD students, at least the ones I've talked to. Because when I got my PhD at Drexel, Trina was the only female faculty in the marketing department. Uh, So for us, she was like the person that we were trying to look up to. So Trina, can you give us a a quick overview of who you are, where you grew up, and so on? Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way because um, I I hate, uh, I would say hate's too strong a word. I dislike the typical American response to define themselves as what I do to make money. So I like that you said like where I grew up, et cetera, because it's the experiences that, that make who you are. Um, and I grew up in a little tiny town, uh, in Iowa on the Mississippi river, like playing in the woods and stuff like that. So, and of course it's, it's a very small town and not very diverse. Although I ended up doing globalization and stuff, it it was an interesting journey to come from that. I think, I think I actually drove it, but I grew up in a little town in Iowa. I went to school, got my PhD moved to Philadelphia, met my husband an hour after I moved to Philadelphia, and which was interesting, and uh, been a professor virtually my entire adult life. I got my PhD when I was 27. That's the age I got my PhD, so it's probably going to end up being the same for me. Yeah. Um, okay, so what made you decide to get a PhD degree to begin with, and what was the hardest part about it? Usually when people... I tell people that I have a PhD, they think I'm extra smart. And then the other thought is, oh my God, how did you make it through five years of school in addition to undergrad or graduate degree, like a master's? So why did you decide to do a PhD? Basically, because I hated the real world. (laughs) I didn't like the corporate world. And I, I really like school. I like, I'm intellectually curious. I still am. I like learning new things. Also, I'm very independent, so I don't like having a boss tell me what to do all the time. And so, as you know, Boriana, we work on one of the good things about being a professor is we get to choose the projects on which we work. And we get to work on things that we just want to learn more about. In addition, my professors in undergraduate kept telling me, you should go to graduate school. You should go to graduate school. But of course, when you get into a PhD program, you never really know what you're getting into. It's something nobody can tell you about. Yeah, doing it, I, I don't know. I think everybody's journey is different. I think if I had, had been married and had kids, that would have had its own challenges. Being on my own and all alone with no one else to support me had its challenges. Uh, I think just getting through it, just having the perseverance uh, about two years in, I actually decided I was going to quit and went on real world interviews, but that turned me back around and I finished and I'm really glad I did. Yeah. I, so it's interesting because it was the same for me. 
I had a couple of internship as a, internships as an undergraduate and I hated it. I was like, I can't live in a cubicle and in the summer in particular because that's when my internships were. And I was like, I cannot, I gotta do something else. And one of my undergrad advisors actually suggested, actually it was my sophomore year. She said, you should get a PhD in marketing. We need more women. And at the time, I remember I told her, Dr. Henson, you have lost your mind. And then a year <laughs> later, I come back to her and I was like, oh, maybe that was not such a bad idea after all. So I'm glad that you had a similar experience. It's interesting. But, but getting a PhD is very challenging. It was probably, yeah. especially the first two years, were probably two of the hardest year of my life, period. You barely have time for yourself. And that's why, like you said, I um, always was amazed at people who had family and kids to take care of in addition to getting a PG because you really don't have much time to dedicate to anybody but um, your studies. So what was the hardest part about getting the PhD for you? The hardest part? Just, like I said, just the perseverance of, uh, like I said, I'm being alone. That was the hardest part for me is not having a support system. I was far away from home. I was in Texas, um, away from any family uh, or friends. But yeah, that was probably the most difficult thing for me is not having a support system and not really knowing what you're doing. You're just like kind of taking it day to day and kind of imitating. You have to trust your mentor a lot. And luckily I had a really good mentor. They're the ones that guide you through. That's what got me through. And how did you end up in, in Texas? My original degree was in economics. The part of economics that appealed to me was economic development. So I was kind of of the ilk that I was going to join the Peace Corps and save the world kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but so I was looking at economic development. I was applying to economics programs. But then nothing in my life has ever gone according to a five-year plan. I'm not a five-year plan person. It's just like when preparation meets opportunity. And then this was a little bit of a pivot because actually, I don't know if I should say this on a podcast, but I'll be honest, it's, you know, it, whatever, this is the truth. In most places, in most universities, economics is not in the College of Business, it's in Arts and Sciences, yes. and you get paid less yes. than business professors do. Uh, so I decided to look at international business programs. They had a really good international business program at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, in fact, they have the largest Spanish language library outside of a Spanish speaking country, or at least they did when I was going there. So it was really attractive to me. So I, I kind of pivoted and got, my PhD is actually not in marketing. I was never intended to be in marketing. My PhD is in international business with a minor in marketing and statistics. The only reason I got a minor in marketing was political because in most universities don't have an international business department. So at UT Austin, international business was housed in the marketing department. Okay. So I got a degree in marketing. Okay. Uh, at my marketing. I've heard that from other professors, actually. Uh, even at Drexel, who um, I, I believe they gave like an advice to a, a PhD student who was about to look for a job that you have to look at where the economics department is housed because the, the pay is quite significant, the difference in the pay. Yeah between yeah. business school and uh, arts. But I, I stayed for, for, for a long time, I, I stayed on those kind of topics. Like if you look at my dissertation, it's really about, uh, it's a study of the most effective 
effective way to have over a 20-year period that countries were able to progress and increase in the quality of life in their economic system. So whether whether it was consumption-driven or supply-side-driven. So I was real, that's what I, my dissertation wasn't really even in marketing. Yeah, exactly. And so that's how you ended up being mostly focused on global marketing? Absolutely. So everything I do is on, and on the international global stuff. And that's why I was hired at Drexel specifically to teach. Uh, it was called international marketing at the time, yeah. but to teach and research in that area. Yeah. So for the, for our listeners, Trina is our global marketing expert. So she teaches the global marketing classes at undergrad and graduate level. Obviously, uh, she is very busy, so she doesn't teach the PhD students, but undergrads and MBAs. So how did you end up at Drexel in particular? I didn't do the traditional route. The timing of my dissertation was a little weird. I finished my comprehensive exams um, at the end of July. And as you know, the, the market for the marketing discipline is early August. Yeah. So I didn't even have a dissertation topic. I, it was two weeks. So there's no way I could go on, on the market. So I went a, a year later on the market and I was actually finished with my dissertation at the time. So I didn't even go to AMA. It was okay because that's the American Marketing Association. It's where everybody goes nationally and internationally to interview. It's really a very bizarre system where you run from a hotel room to hotel room interviewing. Anyway, I just sent my resume out to schools that I would be interested in. I had a geographic preference. I had lived in the Midwest, didn't want to live there anymore. I didn't want to be in the South southwest anymore i think it was just from movies and stuff i was always impressed with new york and philadelphia and austin the kind of edgy row home thing and so drexel was on the list i interviewed drexel temple delaware uh down in gw baruch in new york so it's really more a geographic thing when i was interviewing at drexel i just loved the people i had been in the area um with Temple and Delaware, et cetera. And, but I really hadn't seen any of the city at all. I'd just seen campuses. And Bert Rosenblum and Rolf Anderson said, hey, let's take a ride. And they did, I, they skipped my job talk. They were like, oh, they were like, oh you know, you're finished. We know you can do it. And they took me on a tour of the city. And it was a beautiful October day. And I just loved it. And when I got off the plane and my mentor picked me up at the, at the airport, I said, I, I know where I'm going. Right, that's awesome. Yeah, but actually, Dr. Bert Rosenbaum was my uh, PhD advisor. He was at Drexel for quite a while, over 30-something years, right? That's, you have been yeah. at Drexel for more than 30 years at this point, right? Me? Yes. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I joined Drexel in 1988, so I'm just finishing my 32nd year. Uh uh, that's well, you know, for some people, just being at the same with the same job for that long is quite crazy. Um, but you have been there, and you actually have helped develop the marketing program to um, a point where we are all proud of our undergrads and graduate students and what the PhDs are doing. And I know that, like now, you're my boss, but. Uh, I've worked uh, for you as a PhD student and you're a great leader, so it doesn't really matter that you have been there for such a a long time. When did you become the marketing department head? I became marketing department head in 1997. Uh, Rob Anderson had been the department head for like 20 years and he was stepping down. It was arranged that I was going to be the new department head. I was going to start in September with the new academic year, but we were having a new dean come in, and it was our first female dean. 
and there were no male um, administrators in the college at that time at all. So she asked me to start early when she joined. So we both stepped up into our positions in June 1997. So I wasn't the only woman in the room, and she wasn't the only woman in the room. Oh, at each other. That's that is pretty cool. Why do you think they picked you to be? Did you they did uh, that was that discussed with you that you would be the the next department head or was it like oh we think you're gonna be a great at the job? No, I don't really know how the decision was made. They just uh, they approached me with it and I said okay. Okay. No, I don't know what the back story was. Okay. Do you know what would be involved being a department head? It was kind of like a PhD program. I kind of. New, kind of new, but you didn't know until you really get into it. And that first year or two, I relied a lot on Rolf. I there were a lot of phone calls at 10 p.m. Okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Okay, so but you were the only woman department head for a while. There was a, I didn't know that there was a a woman who was the dean. Um, yeah, she she didn't stay. She didn't stay long. So then she left after a couple of years, and then I was the only woman in the room for many, many years, okay. until Donna the Peerless became head of management. And how did you, like, how did you feel uh, being surrounded by, because I've just heard stories from people, um, obviously at Drexel as a PhD student, and even now, how you're the only woman in the, like, department head uh, meetings, for example, so how did that feel? I don't know. I, I always, I just charge ahead and kind of ignore it. Uh, and I'm always, I'm very outspoken. So I would just, I didn't feel intimidated at all. I just say what I want to say. It was different at the time. Um, they actually referred to the administrative team as the graybeards because they were basically old men. Right. You know? So they, they actually referred to them as the graybeards. So it was not only that I was a woman, it was that I was young as well i didn't know it at the time but i found out later that there were some people that behind my back were call me burt jr because it, in a way they they couldn't believe that somebody young and female could be making the decisions and since i worked with him he must be the one really doing things but i i just went straight ahead ignored it go for it um one thing that i did have to learn is to control is i think I'm not going to generalize to all women, but I, I know some of my friends have the same issue. Is when I get angry, I tend to cry. So when I would get angry in meetings, there were a couple times when I, I, I was fighting for my position and I got angry. And I just would get up and walk out, walk around the quad two times and come back in. Okay. Because I didn't want to cry in front of everybody. Right. But I was mad. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good advice that actually happens to me too <laughs> uh not it hasn't happened at the job but if i'm at home and i get angry it happens um so and when i was a phd student so i started at drexel in 2008 as a phd student and at the time you were the only woman in the department uh, in the marketing department and then i believe by the time i left there were two or three more i think was yen Liu and michaela joined and then um after i graduated it was chen ellie and me so how did you at what point did you decide so you were the only woman in the department for a while at what point did you decide we gotta add more women to make it more diverse uh we we it was never that we weren't trying to hire women it was that it just didn't work out um okay. but sometimes that uh, Mary Long was in our department for a while, but she she got her PhD in New York. She had a rent control department in New York. She didn't never she commuted down from New York, and as soon as she got a, 
opportunity to teach in New York, she took it. There was always like a, like there was a partner problem, a husband problem, getting two people into one city. And oftentimes it seems that the, the man's decision would drive the couple. Also for a lot of, for sometimes it didn't fit that at the time in like the nineties, for example, most of the women or a lot of the women in marketing were going into the consumer behavior side. And we might be on the market for somebody in strategy. So just to fill the position, they weren't the ones that were applying. But as you know now, both of our quantitative people are both women. Things have changed, yes. you know. So, but I did. We did want to attract more women, and and uh, finally got there. Do you think that having more women in the department is more attractive to potential female candidates? I think so. Okay. I think so. As Absolutely. To, like, yeah, as opposed to being like, oh, I would be maybe the second woman in the department. I don't know how I feel about that. So I guess I, now I see the point why it's getting more and more attractive. And uh, for those of the people, most of you, most of them probably won't know, but you're going to be, your department head tenure will be ended in August of next year, 2021, right? And that's a decision that was made at the university level that department heads can serve past X number of years or X number of terms. And I remember that when um, we had to, there was three department heads at Drexel who were in a similar situation. And I was on the committee that was evaluating you in particular so that we could make a recommendation to the dean how long uh, of uh, a tenure you should be offered. And... I remember those meetings, we were like, what are we going to do when Trina is not a department head anymore? And some people even suggested signing a petition to make it so that you continue to be the department head. So obviously everybody loves you in our department. And the one thing that we most love about it is that you don't micromanage anybody, yet everything is taken care of. Uh, whatever student organizations need faculty advisor, have that. Uh, whatever needs to be taken care of is taken care of. So what is your leadership style and how did you become such an effective leader? Oh, thank you for all the kind words. Of That's course. really sweet. Um, this is interesting because, as you know, like I've studied leadership styles and done research on leadership styles and different leadership styles in different countries, but I don't really have a strategy. It's, I, it's more intuition and gut. Uh, and also trying to mirror uh, and emulate the things that were positive for me and to try and avoid behaviors that I always hated. So when I was trying to get tenure and my idea, I appreciated somebody that would remove problems for me. So I could just, I didn't have to focus on political things. I didn't have to focus on that thing. I could just put my head down and do my job. So that's basically what I try and do is get out of people's way, make sure that they have the resources that they need to do their job and let them shine. Right. Which I think has been working pretty well for our department. Everybody's happy. And I know that in my case, you have been very flexible, especially now with the baby, with what I need in order to be able to take care of her. Definitely, it's very much appreciated by all the faculty in our department. And what is the hardest part about being a leader for you? Having to give people bad news. <laughs> yeah. Having to um, ha I, having to evaluate people and having you're all, they're all my, it, it's not a boss situation like in a corporation. Yes. We're all colleagues. Yeah. Um, and so when I have to make raise decisions and that kind of stuff, it's just very uncomfortable for me. Right. And what about the most rewarding part about being a leader? 
is when people do well, get awards. I'm like, I'm the biggest cheerleader. Yeah, that. I know, and even uh, I remember the first time I taught an online class, I didn't get very good evaluations. And you brought me into your office. It was like a two-minute conversation. You pretty much gave me the advice that I needed, took me down to Lobotech. And ever since then, my online evaluations have been going up. Um, it was, uh, it was, I was like, I had this conversation with my sister because she has this issue where um, her bosses don't really, they don't really guide her. Like, you guide us. And I was giving her that example of how, you know, I was struggling. It was just a little bit of a different, um, uh, you know, environment where you teach. And the other thing that you told me is that I am, uh, I remember that I'm like a little over five feet, a little over a hundred pounds, a woman, and the students don't expect me to be that strict. So I had to go back on that as well, like kind of wind it down a little bit in terms of how strict I am. So you have to find the balance. So how do you do that in your classes? Uh, so that, cause I, my goal is to always help my students learn the best they can. I always think in terms of tomorrow, they're going to go out and represent Drexel, whether it's at their cop or their full-time job. And I don't want their employers to think that we give them poor education. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as a woman, I have to think about how I communicate with my students and they expect one way of communication and teaching from a woman versus a man based on even like what I've heard from students themselves. So how do you balance this out in your teaching? Well, you're absolutely right. Whether we like it or not, uh, people respond to uh, us based on categories and assumptions that they have. So uh, I am female. I'm by four. Uh, I cannot have the same teaching style that like one of our professors in legal studies that's six foot eight man uh, with a booming baritone voice who can like throw chalk at people. Not that that's appropriate, but that's not what I can do. Um, I am very, and especially now I'm a little bit older, so I think I get the maternal thing too. So I just am, I am very approachable. I try and be guiding um, and just almost like the leadership thing. I try and provide them with the resources, but I do hold them to recognizing that, especially the undergraduates, the graduates pretty, pretty much are always on top of it, but, you know, hold them to consequences. You know, there are consequences to their actions and this is this is when it's due and don't give me the dog eat your homework. You know, there, uh, there are consequences. Having said that, if there are life events that happen, come on, let's, you know, be real. I understand that as well, but, um, just really trying, I'm, I'm very approachable. I, I have never made them call me Dr. Andrus or Dr. Larson. Some of them do. I don't make them. I don't make a big point of that. So I, I try and be, as I said, supportive and approachable. Yeah. You know, I also, uh, I, when I introduce myself in class um, the first time, I always tell my students, you can call me Boriana. If you want to call me professor or doctor because you don't feel comfortable. Like, for example, I didn't feel comfortable calling my professors by their first name. Um, but I find that more and more students do call me by my first name. And for me, especially at the beginning when I started teaching since I was that young, was because I felt old. Oh, Professor Dimitrova or Dr. Dimitrova. I was like, oh, that, like, I really feel old. But for now it has gotten to the point where I really don't care about the titles, just like you. Uh, and maybe, I don't know, um, I have to ask the students whether they'll 
think of me as more approachable because of that uh, or as a result. I'll make a point there. Yes. The only time when I will insist, um, when I will bring it up and insist that somebody calls me doctor is if I'm in a room of faculty and they are referring to all the men in the room as doctor and they turn to me and call me Trina. Then I'll put it back and say it's Dr. Andrews. So now that we are dealing with the coronavirus outbreak and a lot of universities have moved to online teaching or remote teaching, how do you think teaching might have to change going forward, if at all? In advance, we record in a recording studio, we record lectures, and all of the exercises and videos and, and assignments are designed around that online environment. And it's all asynchronous. People do it when they want, where they want, etc. The remote teaching is we're doing our best to simulate the face-to-face. Of course, it's not exactly the same, but we're doing the base. So that's why we're having the Zoom meetings, and the Zoom meetings have breakout rooms where you can go off and have your groups can have individual private conversations because we do a lot of group projects in marketing. So we're doing as much as possible to try and simulate experiences where even um, a lot of professors are taking five minutes out of class and randomly every class putting groups of students into different breakout rooms and saying for five minutes network, talk about something other than class to give them that opportunity that you would have waiting for your professor to come in and all of that kind of stuff. Having said that, I think it's more important than ever that professors, in my opinion, if you want to do a quality job and students are out there remotely, you need to be there for them. So it's not like where you're just going to say, Tuesday, Thursday, 2 to 4, I have office hours. Come by and see me if you want. You need to be there. You need to be available to them. I'm not going to say seven days a week. That's too much. I personally, I'm not going to say other faculty have to do that. I give them my, uh, my, my phone and say, text me if you have an emergency. Because I'm not looking at my email all the time. But yeah, I think that's the main thing is you really need to, to, to be there. It's going to be time consuming. But you need to establish as much of a personal connection as you can. That's critical. Right. So what advice would you have for someone who is going to take some kind of a leadership role, whether it's that, because I, you know, as teachers, actually, I was telling my husband recently that um, I hate being the center of attention, like anywhere. The only place where I feel comfortable being the center of attention is when I'm teaching in front of my students. So I see it almost like a leadership role, guiding my students through the material that we are supposed to cover during the term, their group projects, their assignments and everything. Sometimes I give them a little bit of life lesson advice and and all that. But if you want to take on some, some sort of a leadership role, what is your advice for people? You need to be flexible. You need to listen to people. And I don't mean just, you know, just hear them. You need to listen to them. I see people that are very, very smart, very, very good professors, but not good leaders because they don't listen. They're certain they're right. One of my, one of my yoga teachers actually said, a philosophy teacher says that ignorance isn't the biggest problem. It's certainty, certainty. A certain ignorance can be fixed, you know. So, yeah, you need to be open to other ideas and be flexible. That's one of the things I, I remember. There was a dean that was a dean for about 10 years, George Jacekos. Right. And wh- one of the things he used to say to me, it's, he was, uh, sometimes he, he was one of those people that I would push back. I mean, if I feel something about something that the decision is wrong, I will push on that if I really feel that it's wrong. And he said he always appreciated that because while he may not agree with me, if he knew I felt that 
passionately about something that he shouldn't take another look at it. So you need to be flexible and be willing, like he was, to, to, to listen to other points of view, but be passionate about what you're doing. That's, that's pretty much it, I think. Okay. And how do you think that marketing would change? Oh, wait, wait, one more thing. One more thing. Surround yourself with good people. Yeah. Hire the best people. Well, yeah, actually, you know, that's a, I had a, that's a great advice. I had a, um, the founder and CEO of the basketball apparel company and one uh, come to talk to my students two or three years back. He's very busy now. He's leading the, he's the managing director for the innovation lab that the Sixers put together over their training center. So he's helping startups uh, get their uh, feet well, uh, wet and pretty much get off the ground, get going. But he came right at the beginning when they were starting this and uh, the one advice that he told my students is, um, first of all, the best thing to do as an entrepreneur is start as soon as you can be- before you have family, be- before you have kids, because then you don't have anybody that you need to feed and worry about. All you need to worry about is yourself, and it's pretty a risky job. But the other thing that he said was, um, another good thing is that you can pick your team pick the people that you're going to be working with. So um, I totally can, can see your point. And in that regard, my question is, when you interview people for, uh, let's say, for example, we have a job opening for the marketing department, uh, what role does that have to play? Because I've heard from other professors that fit, like, you know, personal fit, also your academic fit with the department is very important. People want to make sure that you're not a weirdo that nobody's going to get along with. So how do you assess that when you're doing job interviews? Yeah, it, it is important because we're working together for a really long time. I mean, if people get tenure, you're with them for a really long time unless they move. Just, you know, that's one of the gut things. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you get along with people or you don't. You get a feeling, if, 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 once again, interest. You get a feeling if they're interested in you. You're interested in people that are interested in you. If I, if I get to a job interview and they haven't done their homework on Drexel, they don't know anything about Drexel. They don't know who's in the department. That shows me something. So if they're interested, if they have, I mean, I can't, there are legal things you can't ask. So I can't say, you know, what are your hobbies? What do you do? I, there's certain things I can't ask, but if things come out in conversation that they're well-rounded people, that they have a life, that, you know, that they're interesting, that they are people that are interested in other things, that are interested in their, in their research, they're passionate. You know, you can teach people more stuff, but you can't teach them curiosity and empathy. Right. Right? Yes, absolutely. And... How do you think marketing would change post-coronavirus? Because we had this quick conversation via email with the department, and I'm actually making all my students kind of contemplate on that, depending on uh, what class I'm teaching. So what is your view on that? How do you think things will change going forward? The detail levels, a lot is going to change. Obviously, some of the things that we had thought were pretty solved, like with returns with with regard to delivery, the physical you know channels of distribution, supply chains have come back to the forefront. Those are all absolutely critical issues right now. But but the fundamentals are the same. I mean, what what do marketers do? And this is what most people don't understand. 
what do marketers do? Marketers identify problems and then try and create solutions. Right. Okay. Yeah. We do. Now the problems of people fundamentally changed because of COVID-19. Um, and so we have to pivot. So but the problems like pre COVID-19 were, you know, how am I going to entertain myself? Which restaurant am I going to go to? How am I going to get to that restaurant? So it was all about hospitality industry and Uber and Lyft to get there. Well, now it's none of that is, is my problem. My problem is how do I bring stuff to my home? So we just need to figure out ways. What are people's problems and how do I solve them? And technology can allow us to do that. People, AI, all of it. Do you think that uh, going forward again, there will be something that like I've had, we have talk, ha, talked about this with my husband and we were seeing by the time our baby is supposed to go to college, I don't even know that college will exist in the form that it does now. What is your view on that? Do you think that a lot of things will be shifted online or remote teaching? And now, the other thing is I'm noticing that a lot of people are taking classes that Harvard or Cambridge or other uh, famous universities provide for free and people are starting to question whether it makes any sense to even go get a bachelor's degree or a master's degree when you can educate yourself. What is your view on that? There's value to face-to-face. -face. Uh, there's tremendous value. Um, yeah, you can find stuff. You can find knowledge online, but you don't find this. The, if you're just doing it all yourself, there's no guidance. Right. There's value in people that already have been through things. I mean, that's why you learn as you get older, you've been through it. You can give advice. You can, you know, what works and what doesn't work. You know, uh, if you're just randomly picking and choosing from courses out there, that may work for some things, but not for everything. Another thing that that's interesting is that technology solves a lot of problems, but it also imprints on, on top of existing social structures. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it doesn't replace the social structure. It imprints on top of the social structure. And I don't know how the COVID is going to affect this, but people have recently been having a conversation about going forward, what, given all the technology, what are the jobs? What are people going to need? And what the experts are saying is that they're going to need things that humans do because AI can do AI. AI can do a lot of stuff. So what are the things that, that humans do that artificial intelligence doesn't? So that's the teamwork, you know, and, and, and even with quantitative, even with big data, if, if there's, for example, don't get like social for a minute, but if there's um, systematic bias in a data set, the data set and AI is only going to amplify that bias. Right. Okay. So you need to have humans to be able to look at things. Right. Um, that's my, otherwise you're just exacerbating the bias that's already existing in the data. You know, we were actually even talking about the fact that we think that people, uh, once this is all over, which I hope will be at some point, people are going to start appreciating social contact even more. That's what I'm finding out from a lot of my friends and especially those with kids. Like, you tell the kids you can't be with your friends and they just like for them that's a big thing like my cousin who lives in germany has two boys and a girl and they can play together but my nephew said i don't have any friends like i can't see my friends for, for a kid that's like a big deal and i think that's gonna be the case with um a lot of people i don't know necessarily about like I'm, I'm assuming people will be going out to restaurants and all that but i think people would appreciate even more the fact that 
you can get together with your family, like see your parents, uh, people, like your friends you haven't seen for a while. So I'm yeah. kind of with you. Even, even within the constraints that we currently have, I think I saw some data the other day. I forget, I don't quote me on that, but it, that Verizon was saying that they are supporting, you know, everybody before this was saying, oh, phone calls are dead, everybody texts, blah, 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 blah. But they're supporting like Mother's Day level phone calls and FaceTime because people, they, they don't have the, the social connection. So they want to hear the voice. They want to see, even, even even if this is not as good as being together, at least Zoom is something or whatever platform you're using. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are using different platforms uh, also for kids' birthday parties, um, just so the whole family can feel like they're together because it's very hard i think for kids it's even harder just because they don't understand and you can't explain even to like a two-year-old you can't be with your friends because there's something going on for them the social contact like playing with someone else their age is is like a big part of who they are so i think that's why people are starting to um rely on a lot of uh different platforms just to to get the um, the social interaction. I also know for um, yoga classes that are being taught online, a lot of people prefer interactive platforms as opposed to platforms that only let you do like one way, just the teacher talks to you, but you can't talk back to the teacher or ask questions or interact with anybody. So absolutely. Can you tell us about your hobbies? Because you're into yoga and cycling. How did you get, and you're passionate about both of those. So I feel like if you're not teaching or baking, uh, <laughs> you, are, <laughs> you are doing yoga or you're doing like four or five hour bike rides. So can you tell us how you got into those hobbies? Well, you know, the, 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 the cycling really just allows me to eat all of that baking. Um, yes. <laughs> I've been an I've um I've been an athlete all my life. I grew up in a family even where they were it was expected you were going to do sports. Um, my parents thought everybody was doing sports, and it doesn't matter that if you're a girl, you're doing sports. So I actually swam in my first competitive swim meet when I was five years old, and they threw me in tennis camp and golf this and ran track and gym did gymnastics all that stuff. So I've always been athletic, um, doing something. My knees went after all that running, and I couldn't do that anymore. So I, I think that the, the, the physical exercise offsets the intellectual, because we spent a lot of time, as you know, doing mental gymnastics and by ourselves. Even though we work together on projects, most of our time is actually by ourselves. There's a lot of sitting and computer work and that kind of thing. So I think that allows me to get the stuff out, right. I, to be active. It's an important it's important balance for me. It provides the balance for me. Cycling is for me, you're right. I'll go for four hour bike rides. I'll go 50 and 60 miles. And there's a balance to that too. If you're by yourself and, and you're on a really good road bike, there's just a whir. So it's like a, it's like a moving meditation that you can have, but it's going to hurt. You're, you know, <laughs> if you're doing hills and you're doing like, a, I did this mountain in, in South Carolina on a ride. It was 52 minutes. It took me 52 minutes straight climbing at about a nine to 11 percent grade. It, it, it's going to hurt, right. but it, it but it feels good after. That right. makes sense. Yoga. Um, I got into after an accident. A really bad shoulder accident. Do you remember that, Oriana? Remember because I broke my wrist like a month before you or something like that. Yeah, yeah, month, yeah I, I think I broke my wrist the beginning of the school year and you broke your shoulder at the end of the school year or something like that. Yeah. 
so it was it was a really bad and surgeries and stuff and my my um my doctor my physical therapist recommended i try yoga and just try to try and open up the, my shoulder and i i really started to enjoy it it did work i actually have gotten into the yoga philosophy which is the other intellectual side for me to interest and at first it was i was i was what my my teacher calls um likes to call a pose chase chaser because I said, oh, I want to get that arm balance, or oh, I want to get that arm balance. Now it's, it's become more of I just knowing my body and feeling what my body needs and kind of fulfills that kind of a balance, a balance. I can read my body a lot better, and it provides balance to the sitting all the time. Yeah, I think actually that's one thing that um, yoga has taught me, that you have to listen to your body. Yeah. When I started doing yoga, I was like you said, like a post chaser, and I would look at the girls in the class because it was mostly the girls who were doing the more advanced poses, and I was like, oh, one day I'm going to get this. And I actually got there pretty quickly because I was going on a consistent basis, and then I started doing jujitsu, and I lost a lot of what I had already gained because I'm like destroying my body. So then when I started going to yoga, I was like, I just want to come here and relax. I don't want to do any advanced poses. I just want to do the beginner's class, nothing fancy. And then I got pregnant and then that was like, like I couldn't even do a lot of the poses. I couldn't do any forward compressions. So it just helps you appreciate just being able to do yoga. You know, that's actually what the one thing that I miss the most right now. I was being in the studio in the hot room with my fellow yogis. That and that, that brings us back to what we were just talking about. That's the other thing that I really got from yoga is um, the community. I love the, I love the community, and that's what I miss. Uh, I know that my my studio is doing really hard, real, working really hard to try and keep the community together and to support the community. But I miss being on the mat next to someone. Right. Um, yeah, There's yeah. energy. Yeah. That's different. And you know what? The other thing that I'm realizing, especially at the beginning when the online classes, the studio that I go to start offering online classes, so for a lot of the women, that's their only me time when there are no kids, no husband, nobody like asking something to do for them. And I think that's another thing that they miss a lot. So I, you know, I totally see how, you know, the community is what everybody, like everybody keeps saying, I can't wait until we're all together in the hot room, like in a packed class, mat to mat, it doesn't matter. We are sweating all over each other. So do you think, uh, you, you mentioned that for you, like cycling could be moving, it turns into moving meditation, but has it ever happened to you where you might be working on data analysis or when you were a PhD student, maybe you were working on homework that you couldn't do for days, which was my case, and I would go for a run or a swim and all of a sudden out of the blue, the solution comes to your head, like literally out of the blue. Uh, has that ever happened to you? Yeah, and I think it's happened to all of us, and there's actually psych psychology behind that. Um, we all say that we, you know, come to the, or there's a saying that you come to the answer in the shower, but that's the way brain works. It works. It's called unconscious thought. So when your cognitive load is lower, you're not engaging in actually focusing on everything. So I need to focus on this problem. But sometimes the focus brings you too much cognitive load, and you can't really explore as many alternative solutions. So it frees your brain up to look for those crazy crazy outside outliers and, and you can find the solution that way. So there's actual psychology behind that. Yeah. 
I, yeah, that was something that used to amaze me, uh, especially when I was a PhD student and I would be like in front of a computer doing homework and I was like, I can't fix this bug in the software, I don't know what's going on with this math problem and I'll go for a run and just like it comes out of the blue. Uh, so I think I, I'm just asking because I know a lot of people who always uh, were like, they, they were amazed at how I could balance uh, you know, going to school and also um, doing athletics. And even when I was in college, I was doing an internship, going to school and also swimming. And my roommates were like, how do you even have time for all of that? And I told them it's time management and I need it. Like I needed swimming was like my outlet because otherwise you'd go crazy. Uh, so I don't know honestly how people cannot free themselves from whatever cognitive load they're putting on themselves, where, where, whether it's at school, at work, or whatever they're working on. Right. No, you're right. And do you think that there's something that you have learned from cycling uh, and yoga that also translates into uh, teaching or just being a leader in general? Oh, geez. <laughs> Stay on your own mat. <laughs> right. Don't compare yourself to others. Right. It's your own journey. And so if that's true for you, it's true for the people that you're, that are working for you. Right. So, um, everybody doesn't do everything in the same time frame in the same way. Uh, if you have different team members and if you have different people that you're working with, not everybody's going to progress in the same way in the same time frame. Um, even with the same strategy, you know, you know, the publishing in our, in our game, we have, you have to publish and you have to publish in certain journals but people have different strategies and how to get there. Some are riskier than others, but you know, what works for one person um, may not work for, for the other person. And you have to just find what's going to work for them and let them go for it. Caution them. If you see somebody going off a cliff, don't let them go off a cliff, but you know, give them all the advice that you can try and steer them in the right direction. And ultimately it is up to them. Yeah. I, uh, um, you know, when I started working with different professors, even from out of school, some of my fellow PhD Drexel alumni on a project, on research projects. So at the time I was single, I had my job and then I had my research, you know, teaching you how to research and I had my hobbies, but uh, they also had a family to take care of, kids to take care of, and sometimes I realized they cannot always dedicate the amount of time that I was uh, putting in, uh, like over a week, towards that research project. So you definitely have to learn to be patient. Like back to your point, and figure out that like not everybody is gonna work the way you do. People might be a little slower, but as long as they do things that the things that they're supposed to, then uh, that's fine. And, bring it, and not, not just in, a, in, a, in, a, in an employment sense, but in, to take it back to the teaching sense, as we all know, people learn in different ways. Some people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners, so you yeah. just have to find alternative ways to get your point across. That, yeah, that, that's actually a very good point, absolutely. One last question. So okay. if, if you had the chance to meet or have dinner with someone dead or alive, who would that person be and why? Um, alive, I would love to have dinner with the Obamas. I just think that would be fantastic. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe.